Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 5, the end of chapter 5. Look at verses 11 to 14 this morning. Hebrews 5, 11 to the end of the chapter. Sometimes in our frustration with a close friend or a family member, we might in... uh, exasperation say bluntly something like why don't you just grow up of course you wouldn't expect that kind of statement in the bible (laughs) after all it sounds a little like a put down doesn't it well surprise surprise here at the end of chapter five the human author who we don't know who that was exactly and god the holy spirit who we know uh, guided him in writing these words use almost those exact words You need to grow up. Could he be talking about you? Talking about me? That need to grow is the subject this morning. In fact, it's going to be our subject uh, for a few weeks here as uh, we get into a whole new section of Hebrews. Let me read it. Hebrews 5, beginning with verse 11. We have much to say about this, but it's hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, Though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Just one truth, I think, in this uh, text this morning kind of wraps up the whole point of the text, and that's this. God expects us to grow up. God expects us to grow up. One of the saddest things that I've ever seen in my life was a baby who never grew up. When I was in high school, my mother had a friend with just one daughter. Her husband was gone. This daughter was in her 30s, but the child was severely disabled. Though she was about the size of a four-year-old, she was like an infant. She could not talk, only cry or coo like an infant. She could not sit up, could not crawl. She had to be fed. She had to have her diapers changed, just like an infant. As a kid, I had never seen such a thing. But even as a teenage boy, I could recognize that in spite of that mother's unwavering love, the abnormality of her child's lack of development caused great deep grief to her. I've seldom thought about that in the last 50 years, but reading this passage, it looms large again in my mind. For God also expects his children to grow up and is grieved when we don't. But the lack of growth described here is not a birth defect. It results from a lack of commitment and a lack of diligence on the part of his children. Now this little section is very closely interwoven, and really there's just this one truth. But if we look carefully, we can distinguish three uh, uh, word pictures, three different colors of yarn being woven together here, all of which speak of our need to grow up. 
Let me just pull them out for you and then and tell you what they are, and then we'll talk about each one. First, there's the educational problem. You don't know what you ought to know. Then it's, a, it's set forth as a dietary problem. You seem to have difficulty eating the food that you need to be eating by now. And then thirdly, there's a developmental problem. Somehow your growth has been stunted. So let's look at those three. First of all, in verse 11 and 12, the beginning of 12, the situation is described as an educational problem. You're slow to learn. Dull of hearing, some translations say. In other words, you act like you have a learning disability. And the result, when you ought to be teachers, you need to have somebody come and teach you the basics again. Now, does this mean that uh, everyone ought to eventually be a teacher? Is that, what, is that what the Bible says? Well, not exactly. In James chapter 3, we read, Not many of you should presume to be teachers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. And in 1 Corinthians 12, it says clearly that the, that the church is like a body with many members doing different things so that some are teachers and some are not, just as some are pastors and some are not, and some are administrators and some are not, and uh, all the different gifts, some have them and some have some other gift. So in what sense can verse 12 say, by this time you ought to be teachers? Well, it's the same thing, the same sense in which the Apostle Paul uh, says in Titus 2, that the older women ought to teach the younger women. The gift of teaching isn't in view there. Only the greater knowledge, the greater experience that always comes when one grows up, experience that can be shared by everyone. Here, teaching is not a special gift. It's just simply the opposite of needing to learn the elementary things all over again. Perhaps few of you would be good teachers. But hopefully none of you need to go back to kindergarten and learn your ABCs. The point is, God expects us to grow up. And that means learning, getting beyond the basics to the richer truths. I must tell you, I've sometimes encountered a strange attitude among Christians. The attitude that says, well, I went through, the catech- through catechism classes when I was a kid and I graduated and now I'm done. I'm through learning. I'm through studying. The outworking of that is total lack of interest in Bible studies, Sunday school classes, reading anything about the faith. But where did anyone get that kind of an idea from the Bible? That attitude that because I made it through elementary school Christianity, I know all I need to know. That's nonsense. But that was apparently the attitude of these Hebrew Christians to whom this was written. And if I press the point and put you on the spot, what new things have you learned recently concerning your faith? If your answer is nothing, then perhaps you're just like these people. You have an education problem. As a rule of thumb, if you haven't tackled any biblical truth that you have difficulty understanding... If you haven't read any discussion of some point of Christian teaching that you find confusing, if you never find yourself getting in over your head in your study of the Bible, you probably are stagnant in your learning. You're probably sitting back on what you've learned in the past rather than moving forward to grasp God's truth in all its fullness. But God says, I expect you to grow up and keep learning. That's the first picture. 
The second picture of this lack of growth is, is, describes it as a dietary program. We read it in the end of verse 12 and verse 13. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk is an infant. Now in 1 Peter 2, the Apostle Peter commends spiritual milk to us. He gives us a command. Like newborn babes crave spiritual milk. It's not a suggestion, that's a command. Crave spiritual milk so that you can grow up in your salvation. So how can our text say that eating spiritual milk is bad if Peter says crave spiritual milk? How can milk ever be bad? This is dairy country, right? Got milk? It's got to be good. Nothing's wrong with milk, whether literally or spiritual milk. Nothing's wrong with it. It's a wonderful food. But when you grow up, you don't just drink milk forever. You eat meat. Milk fed is a term that tends to be connected with babies, with the young. So think about this metaphor. What is the difference between spiritual milk and spiritual meat? Well, spiritual milk is that which meets my basic immediate need for nourishment uh, to give me basic spiritual life. But meat is that which I need for long-term growth, things that enter into God's perspective, not just focus on my felt needs, things that talk about the wonders of God and the the fullness of Christ and, and, and the working of his spirit. So for these Jewish believers, spiritual milk probably consisted of understanding that Jesus is the true Messiah and trusting him. But spiritual meat spoke of their need to go further into all of the beauty and the implication of Christ being our great high priest. That's what verse 11 says. We have much more to say about this. What's this? About Christ's high priestly role. Nowadays, a diet of spiritual milk means feeding on the spiritual junk food that's all around us. The cliche for the day kind of spiritual food. Something that makes me feel better right now. The warm, schmaltzy kind of stuff that's around. Something new, something catchy. But spiritual meat, that's delving into God's word and taking it on, problems and all. Not being satisfied with truths that simply make me feel good. Instead, wanting to know everything that God has seen fit to reveal to us. Dare I ask how we stack up in this? Are we eating spiritual meat, or do we just run around with our spiritual baby bottle already? Do we have any appetite for things that we have to chew on? Or do we insist on being spoon-fed? Worse, bottle-fed. Is the best sermon the shortest one? The one with the feel-good stories or one which stirs up your mind to think about things that you haven't thought about before? Do you prepare your own spiritual food knowing the kinds of things you need and going and finding them? Or are you totally dependent on somebody kind of feeding you? God expects us to grow up. And that means taking to ourselves richer, more complex Spiritual nourishment, the meat of his word, not just the milk. Well, then there's a final picture. Third, this lack of growth is spoken of here also as a developmental problem. You ought to be mature 
it says. But you're still an infant. As I said, all these things are closely related. Elementary knowledge and spiritual milk is for infants. Teaching spiritual meat are for the mature. Three different pictures, but it's the same kind of thing. Now, often we think of being like little children as a positive trait. We are to be childlike before God, are we not? We receive Jesus as a little child, do we not? His kingdom is made up, he says, of of such as these. That is, children he was talking about. Indeed, in Matthew 18, Jesus says, Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Being childlike is a wonderful thing in the Bible. Sometimes. But in other places, being like children is cast in very negative terms. For example, in Galatians 4, being a child is a sign of immaturity. There we read, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons, that is, adult sons. We used to be children, we were like, like slaves, we were minors. But God has called us into adult sonship. Similarly in Ephesians 4, we have a negative picture being like children, when it, when it longs for us to reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature with the fullness of Christ, then, Paul says, we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth with every wind of teaching. Not good to be a child in every case. Again, this is how the Apostle Paul spoke in 1 Corinthians 3. Brothers, he said, I could not address your spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you're not able, you're not ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready because you're fleshly. You see, being like a child is a good thing when, when we're talking about our privileged positions as, as members of God's families, heirs with Christ. Or when we're talking about our simple faith with which, with which we believe and trust the Savior. But when being like a child speaks of our failure to, important, to understand important truths, our failure to live out mature discipleship, then being childlike is a negative thing. So God wants us to grow up to maturity, not be infants forever. So what? So back in verse 13, 14, what specifically is in view here? What specifically is considered childish here? Well, he says not being acquainted with teaching about righteousness. And what is considered mature? Being trained to distinguish between good and evil. Let me explain what's happening here with these original Jewish disciples. They did not understand about God's righteousness. They did not see the extent of their own sinfulness, the total bankruptcy in regard to God's demand for righteousness. Therefore, they were able, when the persecution set in, they were able to entertain the notion that they could go back to Judaism and somehow be righteous enough before God without Jesus. Jesus. 
that they didn't understand about God's righteousness. They could not distinguish here between what was good and what was evil. What looked good on the surface must be okay. And, and Judaism looked good. They'd grown up in that. They knew it. But in reality, it's an evil plan to depart from Christ in order to go anywhere, even back into their familiar worship. But because of their immaturity, they were unable to exercise proper discernment, and they were about to make a huge mistake in departing from Christ. Folks, we still need mature, spiritual discernment to figure out the difference between good and evil. In our world, everything is relative. There is no black or white. There is no right or wrong. Oh, but there really is. And spiritually mature Christians learn how to distinguish those things. Even in the church, we're often not too discerning about what the real issues are. So we make big issues of things that don't matter a bit, and we accept things uncritically that should be thrown out. A few years ago, I spoke to a guy that I knew who was fighting a big theological battle in his church. The battle was that people, some people, especially some of the young people, were not saying thee and thou when they approached the Lord in prayer, they were saying, you. He was all concerned about this. a great theological issue. That's not an issue. It might look important, but it's not an issue. The word thee and thou and you are the same exact word. Oh, but whether you do justice and love mercy, now that is something. And this same person didn't seem to care about that. He was busy fighting the thee and thou battle. But God expects us to grow up. And that means proper development toward maturity so that we can discern the difficult things. We don't make decisions by dividing things with a meat cleaver. Sometimes we have to use a scalpel to sort out what's right and wrong, what's good and what's not. So how do you get mature? Well, if you're still an infant, how do you grow up? If you're all out of, out of shape... How would you get strong and vigorous again? Development of Christian maturity works the same way. You need food. God's word, not just milk, meat, more complex food. You need exercise, not just physical exercise, but spiritual exercise. Verse 14 says, by constant use, by constant use, one trains himself to distinguish between good and evil. You see what this means? It means that just like physical conditioning, there's no standing still, folks. We're either training ourselves for godliness or we're falling backwards. Now, we think that's not the case. We think we get to this plateau and we can just kind of stay here and coast and be comfortable. And, and we've kind of arrived in our spiritual life. I tell you, that's not true. It's not possible. You go backwards. You must go forward. We'll see more of that next week. In fact, if you'll excuse a personal example, not that many years ago, I used to run six miles almost every day. I did that for a long time. 
Why can't I do that now? What did I have to do to get from that to where I am now, where I couldn't run one mile? What did I have to do? Nothing. Just sit back and relax. And it comes on you easily. So God expects us to grow, to move forward. And that means constant diligence in our pursuit of spiritual maturity and fitness. Well, Hebrews is not done talking about this. Chapter 6 gets right back into it again. But it's such a long section, we can't take it all. We have to leave some for next time. As we close, let me say one more thing, though. Frankly, I don't really enjoy preaching a sermon like this. I preach it because it's true. That's my calling, to be true to God's word. And there's no question that this text says God expects you to grow up. But let me tell you why this sermon makes me uncomfortable. There are two reasons. The one is that this kind of sermon tends to beat you up. It sounds like you're railing on the people of God for our lack of growth that God expects. Of course, sometimes we need to hear strong rebukes. God speaks to us that way in this text, no doubt about it. But I'm also concerned that we need to hear again and again and again the enormity of God's grace that's greater than all of our frequent failures. And we need to be reminded of all that God is doing to affect this growth, not just what we need to do. And so this morning, as I challenge you to grow, and I mean to challenge you to grow, I also want to remind you that God himself has given you his word to instruct you, has given you his spirit to change you and empower you from within, has given you the fellowship of his body to encourage and comfort you and walk with you, has given you gifted leaders to teach you and to guide you and to hold you accountable, and has surrounded us with his promises that he will never leave us or forsake us, that he will accomplish what he's begun in us, and he will bring us to glory with our Savior. So yes, we need to hear that God expects us to grow up, that it matters what we do. But I also want to re- remind you, God has not left you alone with nothing but your own strength and your wits. God himself is our rock, our strength, our guide, our wisdom, our good shepherd. And then secondly, I hate preaching this way because... In fact, I think better of you. I believe that for all of our weaknesses and our failures to grow, and I'm very aware of them in my life, and I'm aware of them in a lot of your lives, God has done remarkable things here among us. So I hate to sound like that hasn't happened. But the interesting thing to me as I study this is that the writer of Hebrews seems to feel the same way in regard to the Jewish believers whom he's writing to. If we look further down in this same section, down to verse 9, listen to what he says to these same people. He says, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. So why would he bring this strong exhortation, you need to grow up, 
when he actually has great hope for them. What's going on here? I was amused reading Thomas Long. He's one of the commentators that I read. I was amused reading his analysis of what may have been taking place. So in closing, I just want to share with you, kind of read a little bit and paraphrase a little bit what, how he reads this passage. It's interesting to me. He says, suppose a teacher is about to introduce to her students a new and difficult idea, an idea which will require alertness and diligence to master. She's not sure, however, that her students are ready to take up this task. It's the middle of the term. They're already growing weary. They've already struggled with the first part of the course, which was a lot easier. Will they have the energy, she wonders, for these advanced lessons? So she decides to use a bit of reverse psychology, we would call it. She starts by telling the students that she has rich and wonderful ideas to teach them, but sadly, they're just not ready for it. She, she, could, she could close the textbook ruefully and shake her head because they're just not wise enough, they're just not alert enough or prepared enough to handle material this difficult, this important. Maybe someday, but not today. After all, they're just babes in the woods. Not really up to the stronger adult truths. Her goal, of course, is not to shame them or discourage them, but to motivate them. Now, Thomas Long says the preacher of Hebrews employs a similar pedagogical, homiletical tool in this section of his sermon. In the coming chapters, the preacher plans to dive deep into the Christological water. He wants to prepare his congregation for this plunge into the deep truths concerning the priestly work of Jesus Christ. But the ideas ahead will be complex and challenging, even threatening, and he wants to focus their attention and bring them to a new level of alertness and, and a receptivity. So, like our example school teacher. The preacher wakes up his sluggish students with a little reverse psychology, mockingly insulting the pride of the congregation so that they will take the dare and jump in after him as he leaps into the theological deep waters. Interesting perspective. This morning I pray that such a strategy will be effective in us. That God would use this challenge. You need to grow up to renew our zeal to know and to grow in Christ as we move forward in this book. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the warnings that you issue us, which we typically don't like to hear and perhaps don't like to deliver. Lord, we know that your warnings do not mean that you have done nothing in us, that you warn us because you have done much in us and you have great hopes for us, and we need to be giving attention to what you're doing. And so, Lord, may this section about the need to grow, coupled with the verses ahead of us that we'll get to in the next few weeks, may these things, Lord, uh, rock us back on our heels a bit and cause us to listen and to pay attention 
and to give ourselves to growing in our knowledge of Christ and in the appropriation of that knowledge in our, all of our life. We ask you, Lord, by the work of your Spirit to do this good work in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.